Good morning, church. We want to welcome you back um, to the house of God. Excited to see faces once again after um, two weeks of uh, meeting um, online. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, that's an oxymoron or not, meeting online, but um, it's just, it's great. Praise the Lord for answering our prayers and restoring our health and uh, bringing some of us back here uh, this morning. There are other families who are still sick. We need to be praying for them, um, that the Lord recovers them and that we can once again join back uh, together. Uh, now, next time we'll see each other, it'll be 2021, 2021, hard to imagine. But um, I want us to bow our hearts as we open up scripture this morning and and pray to the Lord, ask the Lord to bless this time of study in his word. Let's pray. Father, we open up your word and give us faith to believe that uh, this is your word. That uh, this truth has been breathed out by the spirit. And your intent is to instruct us, is to teach us, to inform our minds so that these truths uh, would not only be uh, understood mentally, but that, Lord, they would sink down into our hearts and that they would produce a worshipful response. That as we focus on King Jesus this morning, that we would come to worship him. Those who know him as their Lord, as their Savior, what a, what a joyful call that is for us to come and once again bow down at Jesus' feet and worship him. He is our Lord. Jesus, you are our Lord. We also pray for those who may be in our midst here this morning or perhaps connected um, online who have not yet submitted to you, who have not submitted to Christ, their King, Lord, would... would we pray that you would use this truth, that you would use the example of these Gentile um, magi in order to stir in them similar response, to see Christ as all glorious, to see Christ deserving of all worship, to see Christ as the only solution to their sin problem. We thank you, Father. We rejoice in our great king this morning. Bless the study of your word. We ask for your glory and our growth. Amen. Well, please open with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, as we continue our study in our Advent series, God with us. God with us. And as you go there, Imagine it's your birthday. You decide to throw yourself a party to celebrate this grand occasion. Maybe you're turning like 16. Uh, family and friends come to your house bearing gifts. Everything is decorated. Everything is planned for you to have this great occasion. It's special occasion for, for everyone except for one notable exception. You as the guest of honors, completely ignored. 
your family and friends rejoice when they see one another, but not so much when they see you. They bring their gifts and they joyfully exchange their gifts, not with you, but with one another. While everyone seems to be having good time, everyone seems to have forgotten that it's your party. Now, more than likely, this never happened to you. More than likely, this never happened on your birthday, but this scenario plays out every single Christmas. As people are caught up in this Christmas spirit, Jesus is always left out of their celebration. I mean, nowadays, think about this. um, It's even offensive to say to someone at a grocery store on the street or somewhere else, Merry Christmas. You have to replace Merry Christmas with like Happy Holidays or something like that. We have lost the sight of real meaning of Christmas. What is the real meaning of Christmas. Perhaps you've been thinking this week as you were getting together with your families or perhaps you were sitting at home and thinking, okay, this Christmas is unlike anything I've ever been a part of before because it's Christmas 2020 and everything in 2020 is different. What is the real meaning of Christmas? And I will submit to you as Matthew does here for us in both Matthew 1 and 2 that Christmas is a call to worship King Jesus. Christmas is a call to worship King Jesus. A.W. Tozer wrote this, Jesus was born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, died on the cross, and rose from the grave to make worshipers out of rebels. This is the theme. This is the point. This is the meaning of Christmas. And in in Matthew chapter 2, our author brings to the foreground the kingship of Jesus. He is no other than the promised Messiah who would reign on the throne of David, to whom every knee will bow, whether in this life and the next. And Matthew calls us to honor our King Jesus, to worship him this morning. If you're there in Matthew chapter one, I want to invite you to read the entire chapter and we'll look at this chapter here this morning. Matthew chapter two, verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophets and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel." Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they 
went on their way and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over a place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in the dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Now when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. This, what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet, was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in the dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Well, as we look at this chapter here, I want us to focus on this very straightforward theme that, that Matthew presents to us is that Jesus is the promised yet an obscure king who is worthy to receive worship from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Jesus is the promised yet he's very obscure king, but this king is worthy to receive praise and honor and adoration from every single person. And because of the brevity of time here, we won't have the, um, we won't be looking at all the details in this chapter, but I want us to focus on three uh, components to this overall theme of the kingship of Jesus Christ. I want us to first focus on the call to worship the king, the call to worship the king in these few verses. Then we're going to look at the conflict of Jesus's kingship. And then finally, we're going to look at the character of his kingship. First, the call to worship the king. You know, as with every gospel writer, Matthew's choice of words and his narrative here is very intentional. What he is doing in this chapter is he wants us to see the words that point to this great theme of Christ's kingship. 
After reading this chapter, there should be no question about what his intent is. Matthew demonstrates clearly that Jesus is the one, that this is the king. And although there is another king here on the scene, we will find out that by the time this narrative is over, that king is Done. And notice the choice of words here at the very beginning in chapter two, verse one. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Bethlehem right away should, should, should uh, make us think of the city of David. And David was the king according to chapter one. We already studied that a few weeks ago. And he extends, right, this theme from chapter one, David, or, or uh, rather Bethlehem of Judea. So that's the first clue. Okay, we're going to be talking about some king here. Now, all of a sudden, he then introduces another character, Herod the king, right? There's another king in town who's going to actually be surprised by this announcement that Magi will bring in. Magi come in and they said, where is the, quote, king of the Jews? Where is the king of the Jews? Jesus is this king. He's the king of the Jews. And It's both fascinating and instructive for Matthew's audience that the first people who call Jesus king, the first people who call Jesus king are actually Gentiles, not the Jews, which is very, very interesting. They're the astrologers, not his chosen people. And then finally, at the end of verse two, uh, they say, we have come to worship him. This is the goal. This is the call. The king who is born today is worthy of submission and worship. And as with his original readers and so with us this morning, Matthew calls us to acknowledge the same. Jesus is king. Now, according to the pieces of information we have here, by the time, um, by this time here, Jesus is no longer a baby, so don't feel bad about studying this section after Christmas because um, this section, we will find out in all the details, looks like here Jesus is about at least six months, maybe up to two years old, okay? So he's a bit grown up already. How do we know that? Well, in verse seven here, Herod, we read, he determines the time that the star had appeared in the sky and he figures that by killing all the infants of two years and under, I will cover the span of, uh, of Christ. So for sure, I'm going to kill this king if I kill everyone up to two years old. Now in verse 11 also gives us a couple of clues. When the Magi come in, they come into a house. They come into a house and there's no mention of a manger. Um, something that Luke is very intentional about mentioning. Now also perhaps even more instructive is um, verse 11. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his, with Mary, his mother, this um, Greek term, the child refers to um, a baby, not an infant anymore, a child. So by this time, Jesus was no longer an infant. If you read in Luke chapter two, verse 12, It specifically tells that this baby in the manger was an infant. So Joseph and Mary and Jesus, they are in Bethlehem of Judea. And we are told it is during the days of Herod, the king. And what happens? A group of men show up to Jerusalem. Who are these magi? Right off the bat, we must confess that we don't know much about who they are. 
They're called the wise men, or we call them the wise men, because they were people of great learning. They were astronomers and they were astrologers. Uh, someone called them, they were the stargazing bookworms. They were looking at the stars. They were figuring out the movements of the stars. They were reading into the stars. You know what a Hebrews would call them? They would call them idolaters, Gentile idolaters. And they were probably from Babylon. We don't know for sure, but looks like here they came from the east. So it could have been Babylon. It could have been Persia. Uh, most people, most commentators, most scholars, they conclude that they were from Babylon because we know that Babylon's had wise men. They had magi from the book of Daniel. They were not kings, okay? They were not kings. And we don't know for sure that they were three of them. So much for our Christmas carol, we three kings. Um, we don't have to stop singing that hymn or that carol, but... Uh, just be sure that uh, there were neither kings nor were there three of them. Probably a lot more than three. How do we conclude that there were three based on the three gifts that they got from, or that Jesus got uh, from them? So what prompted their trip? This is very interesting. What prompted their trip? They come to uh, Jerusalem and they pronounce to all the people, where is this king? Why? Because we have seen his star, not just a star, but we have seen his star. What prompted this great journey from Babylon probably to Jerusalem was the supernatural wonder. Okay. And even though we don't know much about these men, it is evident that these men, they knew enough of Hebrew scripture to be convinced that there was going to be born a king, a king of the Jews. So many scholars here conclude that this Hebrew influence, the, the influence of Hebrew scripture goes all the way back to Daniel. And so as Daniel, remember, if you read Daniel one and two, you find out that Daniel was studying under these magi, under these wise men, that Daniel actually, instead of being influenced by them, he is the one who influenced them with the Hebrew scriptures. And so by this time here, first century, there's this widespread expectation of the coming king, not only in Israel, not only in the land of God's people, but in the surrounding nations, the Gentile nations. But Matthew leaves out all of these details for us, so we simply don't know. What we do know, however, is that these men, they believed enough to go and find the king by following the supernatural wonder. Now, what about the star? You can read all kinds of explanations about the star because the possibility of a star hanging in the sky, telling these men a thousand miles away about the birth of a king sounds very unlikely. It sounds very crazy. It sounds very supernatural. It's, it's almost a fantasy, doesn't it? Verse two says it rose up. And then it disappeared probably when Magi came to Jerusalem. And verse nine says, the star reappeared again and led them to the exact location where Jesus was. What kind of phenomenon is this? And church, I just want to encourage you not to get preoccupied with finding all kinds of human explanations, various rational theories as to what this star could have be been. 
the point here is that the birth of Jesus Christ was so crazy and was so out of this world. It was not an ordinary event that everything was different. Even the stars were aligned a certain way in order to demonstrate to humanity that something, quote unquote, crazy has happened. Something miraculous has taken place. But what did this star indicate to the Magi? It indicated to them the birth of the king. What kind of info would these men have in front of them, available to them, to look in their telescopes and to see the star and to huddle around and say, listen, this must be different. Something must be taking place. What kind of information did they act on? We don't know. However, we have some indication from the Old Testament which might give us a clue. For instance, you recall in, in Numbers chapter 24, Matthew, uh, Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, this is a prophecy by Balaam who was hired to curse Israel, but instead God turns the curse around into a blessing and he pronounces for Israel. And look what he says in Matthew 24, 17. Just listen, you don't have to go there. Here's what the prophecy says. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. This is a prophecy of someone. In this case, the star is not just a heavenly body, but a person who would shine into the darkness and be seen. And guess what? What does Christ says when, when he comes in, in, in John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. And, and then the prophecy goes on and says, and the scepter shall rise from Israel. The scepter is a sign of, of person's rule, of power, of possessed authority. And remember what Jesus proclaims at the end of Matthew's account, verse chapter 28, verse 18, all authority has been given to me. You see, the Old Testament tells us of the light that would shine in the darkness. And now this star rose in order to announce the birth of the light of the world. God had kept his word. That's why here, look at verse two, when Magi come to Jerusalem, they're not even just saying, hey, we saw a star and it's, it's, it's different. No, we saw his star, a star that belonged to him, a star that indicated something about this Jesus. And think about this, in, in guiding Magi to, to Jesus, this is God, he wields the universe to announce the birth of his son so that his son, Jesus Christ, would be known and would be worshiped. What happened on that day, what happened during that period of time with the star was God influencing the movement in the sky to get foreigners to Bethlehem so that they can worship Jesus. The star was a call to worship the newborn king. And what about us this morning? Friends, you know, for us, we don't have these crazy, magical, supernatural phenomena, but we do have is the word of God. 
And every time the scripture is read, and every time the gospel is proclaimed in our hearing, it is a summons to respond in worship. It is a summons to acknowledge Jesus Christ as king, to bow down before him. Now, this is the first theme that Matthew calls us to, and that is to worship, to acknowledge like the Magi did. Now, second theme I want us to focus on is this, the conflict, the conflict, not just the call, but the conflict of of Jesus's kingship. In verses three through 18, Matthew contrasts two responses towards the birth of Christ. The, The enthusiasm and the excitement of the Gentiles to worship with the apathy of God's people towards worship. The willingness of the Gentiles to act on what little evidence and information they had in front of them to worship the child with the murderous plot of the king Herod to try to get rid of the child because he was a threat to his rule. Because Jesus is king he makes all other so-called kings tremble and oppose his rule. And this is the theme of chapter two. I want us to first of all look at that Jesus's rule, it disturbs all rivals. Jesus's rule disturbs all rivals. We, we see in our narrative two primary responses, right? One of faith and one of fear, one of disturbance and one of delight, Consider this present King Herod, he's introduced to us in verse one, King Herod. It was, I was very surprised this week to find out that the number one figure from the ancient world on whom we have most primary sources of evidence is actually King Herod, Herod the Great. Now, King Herod, you might know, was a very paranoid tyrant. Uh, He ended up killing three of his sons on suspicion of treason. He put to death his favorite wife. Wonder what he did with those he didn't like. Uh, He had 10 of them. He killed one of his mothers-in-law. He drowned a high priest and killed several uncles and a couple of cousins. Now, just a murderous guy, tyrant. Every time he felt a threat that someone would, would, would uh, usurp his authority, he would just put him to death. It's no surprise that Caesar Augustus, um, he at one time talking about Herod said that I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. Because as his pig, you had greater chances of survival than his son. So when Magi reach and coming to Jerusalem and start inquiring about a king and his name is not Herod, he gets troubled. Now, most of us seem to assume that Magi went straight to the temple and that's, uh, most, that's how people interpret this chapter. Uh, they went straight to, to Herod's palace because that's where you assume the, the king would be. But um, I think if we trace Matthew's details here, we should probably conclude that they didn't go straight. In fact, they came into the city and they started asking the people, they're Gentiles. They started asking people, where's the king? Why? Because if they know a thousand miles away, surely someone in the town knows about a newborn king. Where is this newborn king, the king of 
the Jews. And so as they're asking around, now the whole Jerusalem is being troubled and the word reaches Herod himself. When the news, it says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. He was wondering, what can that mean? Who is this king? Uh, can it really be the fulfillment of the prophecy? So, so Herod here gathers the religious elites of Israel to find out what's going on. He himself is a Jew. Herod is a Jew, but he's ignorant. He doesn't know scripture. And so he figures, surely the guys who are there to read scripture, surely they know. And to everyone's amazement, they do. This is probably another troubling scene here is that these guys know exactly where the king would be born. Now, these folks here, the high priests and scribes, they don't always agree on the finer points of theology, but they seem to unanimously come to an agreement here and quoted Micah 5, 2 and 4. Micah 5, 2 says this, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth to be the ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And verse four says, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God. Again, Micah's prophecy not only predicts the exact place of his birth, but emphasizes the kingship of Jesus. He will be a ruler in Israel. He will shepherd God's flock in the strength of the Lord. And by the way, this king is born just five miles away from Jerusalem in the stinky village of Bethlehem. Now this obviously upset Herod even more. He himself wasn't born into a kingly family. He was installed and positioned as a king. Up to this point here, he did away with every threat to his sovereignty, to his kingdom. So what's new? He creates a plot. He calls the Magi, finds out the timing of the appearance of the star, and he pretends as though he's a worshiper of God. He gets into the congregation of Magi and says, you know what? I want to do what you do. He aligns himself with people who seek to worship Jesus with an evil pretense and says, you go find out. You go find out where this king is and when you do, come and tell me, and I will also worship this king. You know what? God knows the hearts of his worshipers and those who pretend to worship God with evil intent. And God knew the heart of Herod. And so in verse 13, he cues up another angel and he sends this angel to Joseph in another dream. And he says, get up, go run away, take the child, take the mother and go to Egypt and remain there. Why? Because Herod had planned a great slaughter. He is out to look at this, to destroy him. 
He's out to destroy him. God knows the evil intent of the king. God knows the evil intent of our hearts when we try to align ourselves visually, physically with those who worship the Lord, yet our heart is very far away from that intent. But Herod wouldn't be stopped. He's so concerned about his sovereignty, his own rule, that in verses 16 through 18 here, we find out that as soon as Herod figures out the Magi are sent a different route, that they were rerouted by God, he goes in and he responds as he usually responds, with murder. He became very enraged, verse 16 says, and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity. When we come to this um, text, this is a very gruesome, a very evil text. Um, Gory details. And um, sometimes we're tempted to exaggerate, even though it's very evil, uh, the number of babies that were slain there as if there were, he slayed thousands and thousands of, of children. By most accounts, he probably slayed um, somewhere in the tents, 20, 30 babies, because the villages back then there were very small. This village was considered pretty tiny and the surrounding vicinities. But regardless of the number, just want to remind you that, that Jesus' birth that the timing of his birth and all the surrounding of everything that, that, that happened around the time that he was born. He was born in great evil. And in fact, we could say that his birth caused people to respond in greater evil. If Christ had not been born, this probably would have happened. And so some people look at this text and, and they say, well, who's to blame for this? You know, it's interesting for us to consider that evil was always present. Evil is present now. And with the arrival of the king, arrival of the light of the world, he just emphasized evil. It came out full force against one who came to do away with sin, against one who came to do away with evil. Friends, what is Matthew highlighting for us in these verses? I think he tells us that Jesus confronts all powers in the world. The birth of this king brings to end all earthly kingdoms. And those who fail to recognize the magnitude of such event will scheme and they will threaten and they may even carry out such terrible evil as the murder of innocent babies. But they cannot stop the reign of Christ, no matter how much they try. One commentator said this, at the heart of the Christmas story is a baby who poses such a threat to the most powerful man around that he kills a whole village full of other babies. At the heart of the Christmas story is a baby who, if only the Roman emperor knew, will be the Lord of the whole world, not just the small region. Whatever else you say about Jesus, from his birth onwards, people certainly found him a threat. He upset their power games and suffered the usual fate of people 
who do that. He died on the cross. But I think in all of this, we can lose sight of other players in the story because of the great evil of Herod. But consider the chief priests and scribes. Unlike Herod, they're, they're completely indifferent. They don't care. Notice, it's as if Herod calls them, asks them, hey, uh, can you explain what's happening? Oh, yeah, sure, sure, right here, Matthew 5, 2, and 4. Um, here it is. They closed the, the, their scrolls, wrapped them up, and, and went back home. Completely indifferent, completely unaffected. They seem not to have a care in the world. Unlike the Magi, they have the word of God. They know it. They're five miles away and are totally uninterested to go and worship the king. This here pretty much tells you the spiritual condition of God's people at this time. They are not anticipating the arrival of Christ. But get this. I want you to see this. And Matthew will let you see this throughout the rest of his gospel. That indifference doesn't stay neutral like it does here in chapter 2. Indifference always fosters opposition sooner or later. Uh, and, And I think Matthew intentionally sets this up in order to demonstrate later that God's people, they directly oppose Christ throughout his ministry. And you will see that as he continues to preach, as he continues to do good works, he exposes the sin of of his people. And what do they do? They turn away so that Jesus in Matthew 12 turns away from them. Indifference does not stay neutral. It fosters opposition. And then at the end, it proves to be like Herod when they hand over Jesus, the king, to be crucified by the Romans. At the end of the story, both of these characters are the same. Both oppose the rule of Christ. Jesus' kingship causes great conflict because he will not have any rivals. But I also want you to see that his kingship, while it disturbed some, that it delighted others. It delights the seekers. Jesus' rule not only disturbs some rivals, but it delights all seekers. Going back to the Magi in verse 9, we're told that they went on their way and the star in the sky reappeared and led them to the exact place where Jesus was. Remember who these men were. They were Gentiles who did not share in the promises of God, but they knew enough scripture to keep looking, to go to the king. Now, does, does this, um, this group of men remind you of anyone from the Old Testament? Think of Abraham. Think of Abraham, right? God tells him, Abraham, I'm gonna bless you. Get out of this land and go and I will tell you. And what did Abraham do? He believed the promises of God, went to a foreign land, took hold of God's promises and says, I am going to hold on to them and I'm going to believe in them and I'm going to be blessed by you rather than be sitting here with my people. What about Ruth? What about Ruth? Remember another Gentile, right? Who's mentioned actually in Matthew chapter one. 
who clung to Naomi and said, I am going to be with you. Your people are going to be my people and your God will be my God because she was looking for the promises of the Messiah. And Magi are just like that. They're looking at the star and whatever information, whatever it is that indicated to them that that king is special and that thing, king deserves worship, they went. Why did they embark on this long journey? Well, verse 10 and 11 tells us to worship the king. And look at verse 10. When they saw the star as they left king's palace, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. If you don't have this underlined in your Bible, circle it, underline, do whatever you need to do in order to emphasize this text. This is like a quadruple joy. Matthew doesn't just say, and they rejoiced. And they rejoiced because the star came. But look at the wording here. They rejoiced exceedingly. So there's like another layer of joy, but he doesn't stop there. They rejoiced exceedingly with great. So there's this third layer. And then they rejoiced with joy, with great. And by the way, it was exceeding joy. It's just mouthful. Why is he doing that? He's emphasizing again and again. But what does this mean? Have you, Christian, ever experienced something like this? Like this joy. Do you experience this joy today knowing that Jesus is king? I mean, have you had moments where you were meditating on the gospel, on the goodness of of God, you were reading his word and, and your heart was so taken by these truths that, that it felt like it was on fire. And so you wanted to respond and thank the Lord because these things are real. These things are true. They're in your life. Jesus reigns and he is your king. When you have this deep satisfaction and confident confidence in God's goodness, man, he's good. And no matter what's going on today, even though I'm facing all kinds of trials and troubles, this joy in Jesus runs deeper than anything else that you face. You might walk around the house and you might be singing hymns or you might be singing songs and maybe your kids are wondering, mom, dad, uh, what's going on? But you understand that Jesus is your joy and you are responding to him. And notice what what the Magi do when they rejoice, they come into the house and out of this joy, they worship the king. They fall down and they worship Jesus. They... And think about this. I think when it's, when it's here on the pages, we, we read it in our annual reading and we miss. But think about this. This baby is like our Nora. About a year old, year and a half, maybe two years old. And these grown men, Gentiles from a thousand miles away, they somehow have faith to go into a house and to see a little baby right there. And what do they do? They fall down before a baby and they worship him. The religious folks in town, the church leaders in town, they are oblivious to what's going on. And these guys, they come in 
and, and they have enough faith to say this kid is it. This Jesus is the promised king of Israel. I mean, thousands of years people were waiting, but they go in and say, no, this, this one's it. This one's it. Why? Because we know that star is different. And we know that star is God's direct involvement in creation that points to the arrival of the king. I want you to know something in, in Matthew. I was reading this, this chapter here. And very interesting observation that as soon as Magi worshiped Jesus in verse 13, Herod is never again referred to as the king in this verse, in this chapter. He is simply referred to as Herod. Not the king Herod, not simply the king. He is simply Herod. Why? Because there's another king on the throne. There's a new king in town. And these magi, they don't worship Jesus with empty hands. They bring him elaborate and, and very expensive gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, there's a story of a little boy who wanted to take his teddy bear to church with him one morning. His parents protested, but he insisted that he would take Frank. And Frank was the, the name of this little teddy bear. So they finally relented. And uh, as we do, they did, they had offering plates. And as they were passing offering plates, this little boy took his teddy bear and he put the bear on the plate along with a few coins. Later on, when asked what he was doing, he said, well, the Bible says that wise men brought Jesus gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I don't have any gold. I have no idea what myrrh is. So I just gave Frank and some sense. And um, I still don't know how to spell frankincense. But um, we know, we know from scripture here, from this passage, and uh, just looking up what these gifts were, that these were some very expensive, very elaborate gifts. And how do we know that? Look what he says here in verse 11. And opening up their treasures, their treasures, they presented to him these gifts. The Magi surrendered their treasures to the king because I think for them and for us, they have found this king now to be their treasure. This is exactly what we do as believers. I like what John Piper says in a way that only John Piper can. He says, when you give a gift to Christ like this, it's a way of saying the joy that I pursue is not the hope of getting rich with things from you. I have not come to you for your things, but for yourself. And this desire I now intensify and demonstrate by giving up things in hope of enjoying you more, not things. By giving to you what you do not need and what I might enjoy, I am saying more earnestly and more enthusiastically, you are my treasure. Not these things. I mean, does this remind you of anything in the gospel of Matthew? 
You know, later on in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 and 45, Jesus will come out and he will start speaking in parables to his people. And Jesus says this in verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. When the man found and hid again, and from the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field again. And, And then again in verse 45, and the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and brought it. This is the delight of finding Jesus, our ultimate treasure. Church, what we see in these two responses is a stern warning for us, first of all that it is possible to know a lot about Christ, but not know Christ. You know, if you ask anyone in our culture today, why did Jesus die? I think 10 out of 10 hands will go up and they will say Jesus died for sin. It's not a mystery. However, not many of those 10 will acknowledge that it is for their sin that Christ had died. So our spiritual situation here, our spiritual context today is not much different than it was in first century. We are indifferent towards God. And sadly, sometimes even in the church. And that is why we preach the gospel because we want our hearts to be reminded that Jesus is king. That God in Christ brings this kingdom to earth. And we want people to hear. And we want people to understand. And we want people to respond to Christ. Because as we studied last time, this Christ came in order to be with us. So that he would save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 21. And so if you're here this morning and your response is indifference, your response is opposition, whatever you may be, I want to plead with you to honor and acknowledge Christ as king. And for us here, church, we want this truth to penetrate our hearts and to make us more tender to to respond to the love of Christ. Uh, to love him more as his followers, to be a worshiper of Christ to a greater degree. Because the truth is this, the struggle doesn't end because Jesus is king, who is the Lord over everyone's lives. And he is control over our lives. You know, we, we, we may think sometimes, and we may look at this guy, Herod, and he says, man, You know, what a tyrant who resorted to murder in order to maintain his control over his land, over his life, over his family. But as far as our heart, we do the same thing often. We go great lengths in order to secure control over this area or that area of our heart without surrendering it to the lordship of Christ, without obeying him, especially if we know that obeying him in this area will cause great difficulty. When Jesus comes into our life because he is Lord, there is no doubt that there will be great struggle. When you and I surrender to Christ as to King and Lord, it will inevitably reveal itself in struggle and conflict in the midst of the world, in the midst of our sin, 
This has to be the case, but Christians, be encouraged. You are on the right side when you acknowledge Jesus as king. You are serving the right king. Worship Christ and trust his word. We looked at the call to worship and we looked at the conflict to Jesus' kingship. Finally and briefly, let's look at third, the character of Christ's kingship. I want us to consider just two things about his kingdom here. Number one, his kingdom, his kingship was protected by supernatural power. Although Christ was born into a world of violence, brutality, and evil, we see that all throughout this uh, chapter and the previous one, Jesus is divinely protected by his father. His kingdom is divinely protected by his father. He is preserved in Bethlehem. In verses 13 and 14, we find out that as soon as uh, Herod plans this threat, God tells Joseph to, to move forward, flee. It was a, it was a, a journey about 100 miles from Bethlehem to Egypt. And this would be a fulfillment of scripture, which Matthew under the inspiration of the spirit applies to Jesus instead of Israel. He says, Jesus went and came back from Egypt. Quoting Hosea 11.1. Now he not only protected him in Egypt, but, or in Bethlehem, but God protects him in Egypt, his stay there. You know, much is made of Magi's gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Sometimes they say gold indicates kingship, frankincense indicates his, his priesthood, and then myrrh prepares him for death. I don't think we, we have the biblical warrant here to, to do that um, because Matthew doesn't tell us that. But uh, I, I think um, it would be safe to assume that God sovereignly provided these gifts to Jesus and ultimately to Mary and Joseph as a way to sponsor their trip to Egypt and their stay there. They weren't rich. They didn't have anything. And so these gifts came from these men in order to be utilized, I think, on the way to Egypt and their stay in Egypt. So the character of his kingdom is that it's always protected. This man is special. Jesus is unique and God does goes great lengths to protect him. But the second thing, I want you to notice that Christ's kingship will be characterized by this great obscurity and derision. Jan, Jan said this much in his prayer this morning that it's interesting while Matthew's first four Old Testament quotes are direct reference to another passage that can be identified in the Old Testament. This last one here in verses 9 through 22, especially in this verse 23, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. He shall be called a Nazarene. This one puzzled many scholars and, and still does to this day. Because the other Old Testament quotes, uh, Matthew identifies the prophet or refers to a prophet in singular form. But here he says what was spoken of through the prophets, plural. Now, I think in essence, what Matthew does here is instead of quoting one verse from the Old Testament, he is summarizing a general concept, general truth about this king. And what Matthew is most likely saying is that this prophet or the prophets rather in the Old Testament predicted that this promised king would come in and he will live in obscurity. He will be scorned. He will be mocked. Jesus will be despised. How do we know that? 
Well, this phrase, he shall be called a Nazarene, to call someone a Nazarene was a derogatory term. It was meant to hurt. It was meant to call him names. Um, Consider Jesus, his birth. He wasn't born in a palace. His childhood, maybe one and a half here, he has to get up and run in order to escape because not only is he feeling the threat of other lives, it's a direct result of his birth. He is fleeing his own skin, basically. People are looking for him. Consider his ministry. On many occasions, Jesus said, you know what? I think even the birds of the heaven are doing better right now than I'm doing here with you guys in human flesh. I don't even have a place to lay my head. That was his ministry, his birth, his childhood, his ministry. And ultimately, what did that result? What did I end up? Ended up on the cross, ended up on the cross. You know, later on in in Acts 24, verse 5, Uh, Christians are referred to as the Nazarene sect. The Nazarene sect of whom Paul was the ringleader. And this expression here was meant to mock Christians. Was meant to hurt Christians. So Matthew writing this in in first century to the first century Christians um, who lived under the scorn. They would have quickly caught Matthew's point. Yeah, we know. We know Jesus is Nazarene because we are experiencing the same scorn and mockery that Jesus did. Because he warned his followers, right? He says, the way they treated me, they will treat you. Be ready. Stand. Be ready to suffer. Be ready to die. This king who is despised and rejected by men, brothers and sisters, he looks nothing like the king they expected because as John will later on testify and write down and record Jesus' words before the pilot, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not like Herod. I'm a different type of king. Well, as we wrap up another Advent season and prepare for a new year, Matthew offers us a lot of food for thought. He calls us to worship the king. Today, the gospel is once again ringing in our ears Jesus is king. And just like God wielded the universe and the movement of stars in the first century in order to announce the birth of Jesus so that Gentiles can come and worship and adore and know God, the same Lord is calling us today to worship Jesus. Let us come. Let us all come. And those of us who know him and believe in him, renew our adoration for the king. How? By submitting to him, by trusting him to be our king, by growing in our obedience to him, by repenting of our sins. The point here is don't ignore Jesus. Friend, if you're indifferent to the word of God this morning, be careful. Be very careful. Remember the religious elites whose indifferent indifference fostered opposition and then even hatred. The call for us is to repent and to believe in Christ, pledge allegiance to Christ by bowing in humility and adoration. Once again, the message of Matthew 2 is don't ignore Jesus.
Brothers and sisters, are you suffering this morning? Are you suffering today? I think the same message brings us so much comfort, so much encouragement. Look to Jesus, our King, who was born for you, who bled for you, so that your joy in this ever-reigning King would run deeper than any sorrow. Your King reigns, church. Our King Jesus reigns today. And guess what? According to Micah 5.2, our King is a great shepherd of his people. He knows us. He knows you, and he knows you, and he knows all of us. Some of you might be reminded, might need to be reminded of this truth, especially this morning. Every need that you have is completely known by the one who shepherds his people. Another passage in the Old Testament says that he carries our sorrows, he carries our burdens. You don't have to deal with these things alone. Jesus can be trusted because he is a good shepherd. Praise God for giving us this king. Our Father, we are so thankful. What an amazing reminder. What an amazing faith to bow down at the feet of this little child, prostrate themselves, and surrender themselves to you. Lord, give us this faith again and again. We thank you for King Jesus. Help us to know that this King is our shepherd, that he cares for us. He leads us and he provides for us and he protects us. Oh, help us not to be indifferent. And Lord, if there is an indifferent soul, if there's a soul who is opposed to this message of the gospel even today, right now, we pray by the power of the Spirit, would you operate in those hearts and would you humble that heart to see Christ like they've never seen him before and to see themselves in all the ugliness, in all the sinfulness, and to acknowledge him as their Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you will answer our prayer. Bless us. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen.